0: So last week, I also made the point to say that I really didn't like the caricatures of Judas. That everybody has this idea that Judas was like the the, the old black and white TV show villain, you know, pointy beard, thin mustache, always looking for a way to, to, to do something underhanded and sneaky. That's that's not Judas as we encounter him in the scripture. He's one of Jesus' disciples he's no more evil than Peter is. And, and really, if you think about Peter's own actions, after he declares Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, then he argues with her. Right? Judas wasn't even that outspoken. Uh, in fact, we don't read a lot about Judas until this part of the Gospels. Um, there is uh, in, in uh, John's Gospel, I've got to write down the uh, the address of Luke chapter 17 in Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, Jesus does refer to the son of destruction, or the son of <laughs> perdition, depending on your translation, uh, which is a reference, we believe, to Judas. Um, but that's about the closest we get to this picture, that Judas was evil from the get go um, I, I really don't think it is. Um, in First uh, John chapter two, verse nineteen, that's not our scripture this morning. It's just a, another page where we hit a description that would fit Judas. Okay, in First uh, John two nineteen, John says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they are are all not of us. So the the idea here is that there are people in the congregation who aren't part of the church. We talked about this a couple weeks ago with the wheat and the tares and the sheep and the goats, right? Same idea. There are some who are in the church who are not of the church. And in the case of Judas, I think that's what we have here, is we have somebody who is in the fellowship of the disciples, but he is not of Christ. He was a goat before Jesus called him. He was a tear in the garden with the wheat before he was called, but he was still following Jesus at this point. Um there is one thing I have not described Judas as in all of this, and that is saved. I have not made a reference to Judas's eternal state. Uh, anybody want to take a shot at why I haven't made a reference to Judas's eternal state? You don't know it. Yeah, because the Bible doesn't. One of my heroes in the faith, John Calvin, made the statement that where God has chosen to be silent, we should not speculate. Right? Uh, take the, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Okay? The very early days of the church. Everybody is taking their property, they're selling it, they're bringing the money to the church. And Ananias and fire, they go sell their property, and they decide they're only going to give part of the money to the church. Right? But they lied about it. Now, many, many, many people will say that God condemned them to an eternity in hell because of that choice. That's not what Scripture says. The scripture says they died. That's it. So we don't know their state. We don't know Judas's state. Um, Jesus' call for Judas to be a disciple did not constitute salvation. Um, now, at the same time, I also have to ask the question, because this is the way Bill's brain works. Was he unsaved? No. No No clue. Jesus says he was the son of destruction, the son of perdition. That does kind of indicate that he was unsaved. Um, In John chapter 17, Jesus says that he was the only one that he lost was the son of destruction. So that would be Judas, presumably. Um, The evidence kind of leans that he was (coughs) not saved. But we don't know. We don't know. What I do know is that if he was lost, he was lost before Jesus called him to be a disciple. He was lost while he was a disciple, and he was lost afterwards when he went and killed himself. If he was not lost, he was not lost because Jesus saved him, and we may all be surprised we get to heaven and he's up there walking around too. I don't know. What I do know is <coughs> is that we have to be careful not to tread where Scripture does not tread. And that's the point of that introduction this morning. When we look at Matthew 26, uh, starting in verse 14 today, going through verse 25, we're going to see Judas again. And here's that picture. Now, if, if you're a, a visual person like me, when you hear a description of somebody, you build a picture of what they look like in, in your head. Right? I do this. I uh, do blame it on my my parents because they got me reading books when I was young and when I read a book I envision the people in the book. Right? That's just the way I do things. This is a spot where it's really easy for me to see Judas as a villain. As the old 1960s black and white villain with the pointy little beard and the the, the little thin mustache and the slick back hair and the evil laugh. But that's not what Scripture tells us. So I'm going to ask you all to stand as we read this morning, picking up in verse 14 and going through verse 25. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepared for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to understand the message contained within it, help us to see how it applies to all lives today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. <coughs> You remember a while ago when I talked about the difference between the four gospels that, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels and John is not and that's because the, the, the synoptic gospels all kind of seem to weave together one coherent story uh, Matthew and Mark can agree with each other and, and Luke and Mark can agree with each other but Matthew and Luke never agree against Mark there's there's some question as to who used who as a source and, and that sort of thing and um, I'm really glad we have all four of the Gospels because verse 14 really makes it hard for me to defend what I've been saying about Judas. Because Matthew just opens up in verse 14 and it says, then Judas went and ran it on Jesus. That's a problem. Um, that sure sounds like somebody who has been looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Except... We have to look at the context of the gospel in its greater story. So, if you put your finger here and flip to Luke chapter 22, Luke 22, starting in verse 3, Luke gives us just a little bit more detail than Matthew does. By the way, Matthew and Mark are almost identical in this account. Luke 22, verse 3, Luke says, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. That gives us just a little bit different of a picture, doesn't it? Why did Judas go to the chief priests? Because he was under the influence of Satan. Okay? Now, the, the driving push behind Judas going, Luke makes it clear, was Satan. This is one place where Flip Wilson could accurately say the devil made me do it. Okay? But, but, Remember that Judas, whether he was saved or not saved, is still a human being with a sin nature. In his sin nature, whether he was the whole time plotting against Jesus or he just all of a sudden had this idea, you know what, Jesus is going the wrong way, I need to fix this. In his sin nature, he was diametrically opposed to the will of God. So when Luke says that Satan entered into Judas and he went to the priests, it was a very, very slight note. He was not a puppet taken over by Satan. He was not possessed, walking like some kind of demonic robot. He was in his own mind with that little whisper in his ear that, you know, if you think about what Jesus has been doing for the last couple of days... He's going to get all of us killed if you don't do something about it, right? Remember what Jesus has done in his his two days in Jerusalem from Palm Sunday till now? Remember what he's done, right? He goes into the temple his first day in town and he kicks the money changers out and he kicks out the people that are selling the animals. And then the next day he comes in and he starts prophesying against the priests and the Levites and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he's just beating everybody up. And then on his way out of the temple, he says, oh, by the way, the day is coming when the temple is going to be destroyed. How much of a push do you think Satan had to give? Mm-hmm. Not much. Okay. As a matter of fact, I'd wager a guess that Peter is probably thinking the same thing. Because it's Peter. Right? The priests were already looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. We saw that last week. When we looked at uh, verses uh, 3 and 4 and 5, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, we don't want to riot. Now here's a question for you. Did Judas know that the priests were having this meeting? Scripture doesn't tell (laughs) it. Were there whispers in the streets? Probably. More importantly, Judas was with the twelve in the temple courtyard while Jesus was teaching Now, I know you guys all pay rapt attention when I'm up here talking. Nobody ever looks in a different direction. When I'm up here, wow, somebody's feeling guilty because her face is, as her hair this morning. (laughs) Judas was part of the crowd. He's hearing Jesus teach. And he's a person, so he's probably looking around. And as he's looking around, he sees these little clusters of priests that are listening to Jesus saying how bad the priesthood is and the curses that are going to come on the priesthood. And Judas is thinking, this is not good. We're in their town. They have all the power and the authority. But we don't know. We don't know what drove him to go to the priests. We know that he did. And he made a deal with them for 30 pieces of silver. I don't know how big the pieces of silver were. I I don't know if it was a denarius. I don't know if it was a talent. I doubt that the priests weren't that rich. Uh, But he made a deal for 30 pieces of silver. The priests are looking for a way to have Jesus arrested so they wouldn't have a riot. Judas is looking for a way to keep his head on his shoulders. So Judas offers that inside information concerning Jesus' whereabouts and his schedule. Now if we go back to Matthew's Gospel, if you kept your finger there, you can flip back to Matthew now. We get to the main part of the story. Verse 17, where we're told on the first day of the unleavened, unleavened bread... The disciples came to Jesus and said, Where do you want us to prepare for the Passover? And Jesus, he says, Go into the city and find a certain man and tell him that I want to have Passover at his house. (coughs) Okay, now, in our Western sensibilities, that sounds a little bit odd, right? Can you imagine somebody showing up at your house and saying, Hey, by the way, uh, Jesus is in town. He wants to have dinner with you tonight. Uh, oh, okay. All right, that just sounds kind of weird. But now if you go back to Luke again, and I'm not going to have you turn back there. I'm just going to summarize what is said. In Luke's account, they ask where they're going to have the Passover at, and Jesus says, okay, here's the deal. I want you to go into town, and I want you to look for a guy carrying a jar of water. Follow him to his house, and then tell him that I want to have Passover with my disciples in the upper room, and he'll show you where that we need to be. Okay? So, the certain man that Matthew says is a guy carrying in a jar of water. Sounds strange? Okay? Um, yeah, women carried water jars. If a man was carrying water, it was in a skin. It was in probably a a sheep's bladder or a goat's bladder or something like that had been cured. And and that's where he carried water at. Because guys needed to have water portable to work. Women carried the jar from the well to the house. Jesus says, go find a guy carrying a jar. That's pretty specific. That's somebody who's going to stick out in the crowd. And then, Jesus invites himself to this guy's house. Follow him to his house and tell him that the master desires to eat the Passover feast in his house. Okay. Right? This level of expected hospitality is beyond weird in America. It was not weird in Israel in the first century in Jerusalem at Passover. Many people who had multi-story houses would open the upper room for visitors and guests to come in and celebrate the Passover. Because everybody came to Jerusalem for the Passover. We're not talking about a place with high-rise condos. There are very few places where you could have the fees appropriately. And the thing that, the thing that makes this the, the weirdest is the disciples go to the they go to the city and they find a guy carrying a jar of water. And they follow him to his house and they tell him, Jesus wants to have the Passover in your house. And the guy takes him upstairs and he says, How's this? And there's a room furnished and already set up, ready to go for the Passover. So they prepare it the rest of the way They make sure there's no yeast. They do everything they're supposed to do. And they prepare the room for the feast. So what? Well, look at the context of the story a little bit. In the previous passage, verses 14, 15, and 16, helped out by Luke just a little bit, that Judas, motivated by Satan, pushed over the edge just a little bit, goes as a turncoat to the priests and betrays Jesus, eventually to his death. Satan thinks he's in charge. The Holy Spirit inspired this word. Jesus says, as you go into the city, God's going to have a guy standing near the gate with a jar of water who has an upper room that's already furnished and ready to go where we're going to have the Passover feast. Who's in charge? God's in charge. If you contrast those two passages, you get a good idea of the fact that Satan is not the one running this show. Now, we'll keep going. The evening of the Passover meal. Now we've moved on to verse 20. This is presumably Thursday if we stick to the traditional church calendar. Of the crucifixion happening on Good Friday. Thursday after sunset. Because the lamb was supposed to be slaughtered at twilight. Not in the morning. But as the sunset. Thursday evening. Jesus and the twelve are at the table. And I'm sure you've heard that. whole. the tables. Not like our tables. It's not up off the ground with chairs. It's low to the ground. And they're laying down with their feet probably off at like a 45 degree angle and they're up on one arm as they're eating and so on and so forth they're seated at the table and Jesus drops a bombshell in the middle of the meal one of you twelve is going to betray me now all twelve of them are surprised by this revelation though Judas is surprised for a different reason than everybody else is everybody else is saying what? what? Who would do that? Judas is saying, how did he know? Right? They each ask Jesus, who's going to be the one who betrays you? Who is it? Is it me? Am I going to be the one? In John's account, and, and I really, uh, so just to give you a little foretaste of what's going to happen here for as, as long as uh, I continue to preach, which I ain't shutting up anytime soon, um, following Advent, we're actually going to spend a whole lot of time looking at the upper room and the Passover meal. Okay, So next week, our passage is going to be verses uh, 26 through 29. We're going to spend the entire morning focused on the Passover meal and the institution of the Lord's Supper. And there's going to be a little bit of Advent in there. And then the next three weeks are Advent, and then the week after Christmas is going to be a sidestep into John's Gospel, into the Upper Room Discourse, where we're going to spend a lot of time looking at Jesus' talk with the disciples in the Upper Room around the Last Supper. Because there's a lot of really important stuff in there. And John's Gospel, quite honestly, is is one of my absolute favorite books in the New Testament. Along with the (laughs) rest of them. I'm just saying. So, (coughs) each one of the disciples asked, Who's going to do it? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be me? Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus says that it's the one who's dipped his hand in the dish with me. And as we saw here this morning, uh, in verse 25, Judas says, is it I? And Jesus responds, you have said so. Right? Um, John says that, that Jesus said it was the one that he will give the morsel of bread to after he dipped it. And then Jesus dips the bread and gives it to Judas. Right? That doesn't negate what Matthew and Mark said. That just clarifies what's going on. A little bit more context. And then, um, Jesus, uh, John rather, also says that immediately after Jesus hands him the bread and gives him the confirmation that Jesus knows he is about to do this, Jesus says to Judas, what you're about to do, go do quickly. And I love how John puts it. The rest of the disciples don't have a clue what he's talking about. So they're like, is he, is he going? To, did we forget something? Is he going to buy more, more bread? Is he going to, to what, make, give the money to the poor? Or what, where is he going? Right? And of course, we know because we've got the whole story. He's going off to get the group together to arrest Jesus. Um, this is where the story ends for today. This is where we're done for today. And it might seem like a really dark place to stop. I mean, we just got done with Thanksgiving. We spent an entire I mean, you know, it would fit after Black Friday. Um, but we just got done celebrating a day where, where we, at least on the calendar, and for most of us, we at least mentioned the idea of gratitude at least once a year, Right? And here I am with this picture of Judas going off to to turn Jesus over to his death. But if you paid close attention, you'll notice that I skipped verse 24 in the sermon. I read it, but I haven't yet covered it. And that's because verse 24 is the message of hope in this passage. Jesus says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. The, The second part of that, that is just whether Judas was unsaved and remained that way, whether Judas was saved and is just now going to suffer a horrible death, and you have to agree that his death was pretty terrible, right? Um, Jesus says that it would have been better for Judas to not have been born. Okay? But the important part is the beginning of this. This verse. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Again, we have the picture. Who's in control? Who's in charge? Jesus is doing this because God has said it's going to be done. Jesus is doing this of his own will, motivated by his love for his Father and for his people. He's not under duress. He's not doing this against his will. Now, let me point out, Jesus is fully God, fully man. Okay? He is fully submitted to the will of the Father. He's doing this because it is the Father's will. I said he's not under duress. But if you read ahead to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, if there's any other way possible, can we do that? No. Right? He's not eager to do it, but he's not forced into doing it. But he makes it clear that even though Judas is acting according to the plan of God, even though Judas is doing exactly what had been prophesied, Even though this is going to lead to his death, there are consequences for Judas' actions. Now, there's there's an entire area of theology that deals with the problem of evil. Okay? And and basically, it's because we have philosophers. Philosophers have ideas. Philosophers' ideas fall out of their mouths, and it makes people think, and it causes people all kinds of conundrums. All right? All right? So here's the philosophy that causes this whole area of theology to exist. God is all-powerful, right? God is all-good, right? Why does evil exist? Okay? But it it poses the question, either God is not all-good, so he allows it to exist, or he's not all-powerful, and he can't stop it. Otherwise, evil is somehow part of God's plan which makes God the author of evil which scripture says he's not I told you philosophers okay this is the kind of stuff I went to school for I got to put that degree to work for something alright <clears throat> so there is a doctrine that answers this and I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles one more time alright Flip over to the book of Genesis. That's all the way back at the front end. Chapter 50. Chapter 50. Yeah, every time I turn to the book of Genesis, I'm surprised by how long the book is. I don't know why. It's not like I've never read it before. Genesis chapter fifty. Now, if you think about what has happened here leading up to Genesis chapter fifty, we have the sons of Joseph. Uh, the, the, sorry, the sons of Jacob. Right, and, and I'll recap the story of Joseph. Right, you've got these these ten older brothers, and then you've got Joseph, and you've got his little tiny brother who doesn't really figure into the picture until the end of the story. Right, and parents. It's okay, you can admit it. Jacob had a favorite. We all do. Sometimes it changes day by day. (laughs) Right? Joseph was the favorite. And Joseph had a big mouth. Joseph has these dreams. And he comes and he tells his brothers about these dreams. And they're not flattering to the brothers. Look, I had this dream. And it means you guys are all going to bow down to me. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm an older brother. I understand this. Right? So they throw Joseph into a pit. They dip his coat in goat's blood. They take it back to his father and they say, hey, He was eaten by, by animals. Sorry. And Jacob grieves. When in reality, they sold him into slavery. He goes to Egypt and we know the travails and everything in Egypt. The famine hits the land. He's the prime minister of Egypt. His brothers come to Egypt. He recognizes them. They don't have a clue. Right? So he sets it up so they have to return by hiding stuff in their bags, right? Getting them in trouble, throwing a couple of them in jail, right? Now this is little brother revenge, okay? (laughs) Finally, when he reveals himself to them, they understand who he is. All of the older brothers are like, man, we deserve anything he does to us. He could put us in prison. He could have us executed. We would deserve it. And we're going to man up and take our punishment. So they fall on his mercy. And he, he starts weeping. And he says, knock it off. Stand up. You're forgiven. And in verse 20, this is the part I wanted you to look at. As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This doctrine, this principle, is called confluence. Okay, If you go look that up, it's going to talk about it's actually going to talk about geography. If you go look it up online. Confluence is where two rivers join together. Okay? Well, two rivers. Two wills. The will of Joseph's brothers and the will of God. The will of Joseph's brothers was to do evil. They were not thinking, look, if we sell our brother into slavery, eventually he's going to rise to power in the Egyptian court and save us all from starving to death. No. Trust me, there is no big brother in the world that thinks that highly of their little brother. Okay? It just doesn't happen. Their thought process was, if we sell him his slavery, and he gets sold off to Egypt, he's probably going to be dead and gone, while we're living a nice prosperous life, and then that whole, we're going to bow down to him dream? Yeah, he can stick that someplace unpleasant. God had a different plan. Even though those two wills appear to be 100% opposed to each other. Right? The brother's will was to eliminate their little brother. God's will was to save his people. They met. The actions of the sons of Jacob were 100% reprehensible. 100% their own willful And sinful actions. And when they stand before God, they're going to have to answer for that, even though God had planned to use this to save his people. The actions of Judas in betraying Jesus were 100% his own desires. Remember, all Satan had to do was whisper. Jesus is going to get you killed. You need to do something about him. Judas made the choice to betray Jesus. Judas took the action. But the overarching will of God in accomplishing his redemptive purpose was so that many would be saved. What Judas did was evil. What the priest did was evil. What Pilate did was evil. <coughs> but the will that it brought about was the best good. Now, I've told you all that before I finish, I like to make sure that there is something you can grab a hold of for how does this apply to my life? Right? Let me ask you, have you ever been impacted by somebody whose will was evil? Sometimes intentionally, you know, you might have an employer or a supervisor who is just a selfish, miserable person to work with, right? Or it may be a lawmaker who is selfish and who causes you to pay more in taxes, uh, it, it could be an unintentional impact. And I think for most of us, this is probably the case. We have dealt with uh, suffering because of somebody else's sin. You lose a loved one to the drunk driver. Or, in today's world, the teenager, doesn't have to be a teenager, could be one of those 32-year-old teenagers, who decided to text instead of paying attention to the road. Um, or to the gunman who opened fire at a concert, or a shopping plaza, or a hospital, or a school, or Phil and White, because just about every day you turn around, there's something else going on. What that person did was evil. What we need to remember is that God uses that. For good. That's hard to wrap our heads around. Especially when we're in the middle of those things. When we're in the middle of the grief because we've lost somebody. When we're in the middle of the strife because our boss fired us. When we're in the middle of whatever is caused by the person's evil actions, it's hard for us to remember that God's greater plan is going to use that for good. How do I know that? Because God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, right? Well, when He says all things, what does He mean? All All things. Jesus tells us that we need to rejoice in all things. Paul tells us over and over and over again, to rejoice whatever your circumstances, right? To be thankful for all things. To rejoice in all things, in all circumstances, and everything that goes on in our life, we're supposed to rejoice. Why? Because God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So that means when you're in a car accident, you're supposed to rejoice. I hope you all understand. There's a big difference between rejoice and be happy. <laughs> right. Because I can rejoice while I'm being miserable. And let me tell you, the last three or four months, I've had lots of opportunity to exercise, rejoice while being miserable. This principle is covered very, very much in the account of Jesus' crucifixion and death. God's plan is not evil. It is good. In fact, it is the definition of good. And there is nothing that happens to us while we walk around on the face of this planet. There is nothing that happens to us that causes God to go, Whoa, oh, didn't see that coming. I need to have a council meeting to figure out what I'm going to do with this. It's already part of his plan. We need to remember his plan instead of our circumstances.